0: The joy and the privilege that's ours this evening is certainly a marked one in that we've each been given the opportunity in health as well as in the other features and factors of life to assemble tonight in the peacefulness and tranquility of this hour. We're so thankful for the opportunity of voice and song, to read and study the Word of God, to also lift our thoughts together communally in prayer. And for all of that, we're so very thankful. And for the next few moments, to give some additional thought to the book of Job in the Old Testament. As you perhaps have noted, the book of Job has some 42 chapters, and we tonight have already come to that section of chapters, Numbers 25 through 31. And so we are rather race, quickly racing toward the end of that book. Along the way, we've seen a number of things that might well be highlighted in the following way. We've noticed that Job, of course, in the first two chapters, found himself in the, on the victim end of great calamity and oppression, having lost not only his children, having lost not only the nature of his possessions, but also, as we learn in the early part of chapter 2, his health as well. The conversation between Satan and God is not one that Job was aware of. He understood not the nature of why the calamities had come. And that was, in many ways, the greatest part of the questions that he had. In chapter 3, Job made note of the greatness of his distress the greatness of the despair that had come his way, and some friends who had come to supposedly comfort him began to address him in chapter number 4. First there was Eliphaz, and then Job replied to his arguments, and then there was also Bildad, and Job also replied to him. And finally there was Zophar, and Job also responded to his accusation as well. Following that, the three in fact addressed Job again, And that concluded the last lesson that we had had together. Tonight, as we come to, in fact, the third cycle of speeches, or at least the middle section of it, we notice that the three now begin to address him yet again. There is one distinction this time. There was Eliphaz who addressed him first, and then Job replied just as he had before, and then Bildad, which will be the subject of tonight's lesson, also addressed him, but then After Job's reply, that closes the third cycle of speeches. It would appear that Zophar had nothing else to say. It would appear that he did not feel it incumbent upon him to try and address Job yet again. As we close that one, though, that will bring us to the lesson next time. But for tonight, what might we say about Bildad and this yet third occasion he had to address Job? Please turn with me to chapter 25 of the book of Job and let's notice first of all what he had to say to Job and then we'll note more carefully Job's reply to him. You may notice that to this point chapter 25 is the briefest chapter in the entire book. It has only six verses and we might immediately conclude that Bildad apparently by this time had relatively little to say to Job. It begins in the following way. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite, and said, Dominion and fear are with him, he maketh peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies, and upon whom doth not his light shine? How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm and the Son of Man, which is a worm. At this point, I would invite you to notice just a few comments about what Bildad attempted to say to Job. He began in many ways by stating the character of the greatness of God, didn't he? Job was quick to elevate the greatness, the majesty, the absolute might of the God of heaven, and he did so in language seen easily in verses 2 and 3. As Bildad made that assertion, isn't it true that he quickly stated in verse number 4, How then can man be just with God? Bildad's argument perhaps is like this. As great as God is, as tremendous as He is, Job, you surely are aware of the fact that not even you can be just and righteous and orderly in His sight. Even though you have been unwilling to admit it, Surely the nature of sin that is in you, the character of the ways by which you have fallen and failed, you must appreciate the fact that you simply are not able to be just before a God as perfect, as great and mighty as He is. And with that, Bildad closes his argument. Verses 5 and 6, he again states how much less even a worm would be in his sight. I've asked you to note with me the statement then that Job uses to reply to him. After hearing this, after appreciating yet again another accusation from his friends. In chapter 26, Job replies like this. Chapter 26 is also somewhat brief and we will be selective about the things we note from it. First of all, you might appreciate this. Job was quick to agree with Bildad that God is great and that there certainly is no reason to question or to call oh. into character the nature of his shortcomings to him. Verse number 2, How canst thou help him that is without power? How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? And how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? It would appear that Job answered with a bit of tongue in cheek, In essence, he says, Bildad, the things you've stated I have never questioned. The things you've asserted I have never for once even had any doubt about. I don't question the greatness of God and yet have never done so. Why have you even argued then in the way that you have? However, Job doesn't stop with those questions. For beginning in verse number 4, he testifies to God's greatness and does so in a way that Bildad never had. Notice carefully that Job calls into nature the very character of what God has fashioned and made. He lists several things in the natural realm, in the natural world, and said, God did this. Things from the astronomical observations in the heavens to the character of the water cycle on earth, he says, our God did this. And not only that, he orchestrated and placed it in bounds such that it does not go past it even to this day. After that, Job does something else, starting about the middle of chapter 26. He also asserts, beginning in verse number 10, the limiting power of what God has done in terms of the natural elements of this universe. With that, the chapter closes in verses 13 and 14, that it is by God's power and by His Spirit that this is maintained. At this point, Job in some sense is only warming himself up. It will take all the way to chapter 31 before Job finishes his reply to Bildad. On into chapter 27, we now shall go. Not only is God great in terms of the material universe about us, we also notice that Job was quick to say that even his life was due to God. There's a verse, verse number three, I would invite you to note with me. Job 27, verse three. All the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. You and I are immortal spirits made so by the thunderous power of the God of heaven. Perhaps that reminds us of Genesis 2, verse seven, where in the days of the long past, in the early part of the book of Genesis, We there read, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Not only did God fashion the nature of this old physical body out of dust and dirt, but He breathed into it the breath of life, and from that time forward there have been human beings made in the image and likeness of the God of heaven. Job knew that. And he even testified to the fact that as long as there's breath in me, the Spirit of God has given me life. Today, you and I often can reflect upon still the continuing greatness of that truth. Job continues in this chapter, verses 4 and 5. My lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. Even in the midst of his calamity, and in the midst of his great difficulty, we must confess that Job was a determined person, wasn't he? Here in the face of these friends who really offered no consolation, they offered accusation, and they offered a great tenor of difficulty concerning Job's apparent character, but little if any comfort did they bring him. Job here says, I will never deter from mine integrity. I will continue to uphold that for which I have stood, I shall continue to base the nature of my life and my claim upon the very God whom I love and the one whom I am determined to serve. We must admire Job that even in the midst of this great difficulty, he still did not waver from his faith in God. Have you and I known individuals who when great difficulty came... They were somewhat quick to throw up their hands and say, Surely God doesn't love me if He let this happen to me. Surely there cannot be a God if He cannot overrule the righteous better than this. I've lost the one whom I love. Perhaps a car wreck. Some other tragedy has occurred. And yet this person responded far differently than Job has. We do remember, do we not, from Job 1 verse 21, He did not foolishly charge God in any way. Later in chapter 13, verse 15, didn't he there admit, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And here again we find the utterance from his lips. Note again the wording of verse number 4. My lips shall not speak wickedness. If only there were more in the world today who felt that way. And yet today we so often hear vanity and profanity and vulgarity spewn forth from the lips of so many, and yet Job determined even in the direness of his situation not to utter anything that was wicked. That does recall to our mind the statement of Matthew, doesn't it? When in Matthew we learn in chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, that you and I shall give account at judgment of every idle word spoken, every idle word And so it is that we come near the bottom of that slide to that great acknowledgement on the part of Job. Acknowledging the very One who was the maintenance of His being. Perhaps that only makes us wonder what comes next in the chapter. Later in chapter 27, we notice again in verses 9 and following, "...will God hear His cry when trouble cometh upon Him? Will He delight Himself in the Almighty? Will He always call upon God?" I will teach you by the hand of God that which is with the Almighty, will I not conceal? Job determined not only to live in a way that was proper and righteous, he determined to teach it to others. He said, I will not conceal it, but rather I will be quick to teach it, even to you, who, my friends, who have come to correct me, supposedly. It also seems, doesn't it, that Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz also were in need of some more careful correction and instruction from the God of heaven. Beyond that, we quickly observe in verses 11 and following that what the wicked had received in this life was so short-lived. We noted that as a part of the lesson last Sunday evening, but perhaps this new way of presenting it would be worthy of reading it. Verse 13, please. "'This is the portion of a wicked man with God.' And the heritage of oppression which they shall receive of the Almighty. If his children be multiplied, it is for the sword, and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those that remain of him shall not or shall be buried in death, and his widows shall not weep. Though he heap up silver as the dust and prepare it raiment as the clay, he may prepare it, but the just shall put it on, and the innocent shall divide the silver. He buildeth his house as a moth and as a booth that, that, that the keeper maketh. There we find Job stating that even those who are the so-called blessed in this life, if they are wicked, he said that wickedness shall in fact ultimately come back to get them because the God of heaven is keeping a tally and the wicked shall ultimately not stand. Reminds us of Revelation six verse seventeen, doesn't it? When on that occasion, in that great panoramic view, John was given, as the sixth seal was open, the nature of that great question. He says, "Who shall be able to stand?" When the greatness of that day of judgment comes, and the debris, if you please, has been cleared, who is the one that will be blessed to stand? Not the ru- not the wicked, not the ungodly. Not the unrighteous, but only those who have lived faithfully, and only those who have been obedient to the call of the Master. It is with that in mind we come to chapter 28. As Job continues his reply, this time he approaches his point from a slightly different angle. He again makes note of a number of marvelous features of the earth. Those features are natural elements. And yet even in this day of the long distant past, Job knew it. His friends knew it. He calls them to appreciate the fact that there are veins of ore in earth and they are precious such as gold and copper and silver. In addition to that, he makes note of the ways of various birds of the heavens and he makes note of even things of a weather character. In fact, you'll notice in verses 25 and following, things about the wind, things about the atmosphere, things about storm systems. And yet, this was long before there was any American meteorological society. And yet, in the long ago, these truths were echoed, and they were set forth. That forevermore reminds us, doesn't it, that this book was not written by any ancient scientist. It was written by the God of heaven. He, in fact, gave Job what he was to write. He instilled within Job the thoroughness of passages such as the ones we've read, echoed in the sentiment of 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit thus moved Job to write, He wrote the things of which you and I shall study a bit later in the lesson tonight. You'll notice furthermore in this chapter, there was a tremendous commendation of wisdom. Again, that's a bit interesting, isn't it? For here was a man who was certainly in a very uncomfortable position. Certainly it seems his world had crumbled about him, and yet he could speak about wisdom, he could speak about his propriety, and he could speak about what it was to afford and offer. And some of his words are some of the sweetest to be found anywhere in the book of Job. And yet, this man who was in such a condition wrote those things. As you give thought to that matter of wisdom, chapter 28 closes, and maybe the verse 28 says it the best of all. And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Chapter 29 opens before us. Job continues his answer to Bildad. And in this chapter, we notice that he continues his parable, verse number 1. Job seems to become somewhat reminiscent in this chapter. He seems to become somewhat reflective. He remembers back to the days when things were well with him. He recalls when he had his health. He recalls when he had his children. He recalls when all was nice and easy and his possessions were in so such large number, as he remembers all of that, he's quick to give God the credit for it. But he's also quick to admonish his friends to understand that his integrity has not slipped from him because he still intends to worship and to admire God. I wrote that in this way beginning in verse number 1 in chapter 29. The comments again about those former days, how great they were, and how Job used the talents and the things he had been given. I would invite you to notice carefully verses verses 14 and following. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor and the cause which I knew not I searched out. And I break the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. Then I said, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. Job admitted, didn't he, that even in the days when things were well with him, he did not ignore the plight of those about him. Even though he was rather rich, he still had concern for the poor. Even though he had a table full of food, it would seem, he still was mindful of those that were bereft of physical blessings. That perhaps teaches us that those accusations that Eliphaz had made to him back in chapter 22 were not entirely correct. Eliphaz had accused him of failing to feed the poor, failing to care for the widows, failing to take care of the orphans, failing to admonish and take care of those in need. And Job here admitted the fact that he had done those things. It is to be noted too that he said in verses 21 and 22 of this same chapter, Unto me men gave ear and waited and kept silence at my counsel. After my words they spake not again, and my speech dropped upon them. It would seem that Job was highly respected. Individuals came and asked his advice. They came and pursued his counsel because they admonished, or rather they respected the wisdom that he had. The last three verses of chapter 29 read like this. And they waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide as for the latter rain. If I laughed on them, they believed it not. And the light of my countenance they cast not down. I chose out their way and sat chief and dwelt as a king in the army, as one that comforteth the mourners. Job had been sought out so prized for his advice and counsel. Notice how things have now changed. Now that all these things have happened to him, he's lost his health, he's lost his children, he's lost his possessions, people look at him differently. Isn't that still the way of humanity? So often when one seems to have it all, one also has a lot of friends. But just as soon as there's a little bit of difficulty, isn't it always or seemingly so often the case too that friends also may turn and flee? They don't want to have to be there to help, but they're there to receive it seems as if the same thing was true in Job's day, for notice the first few verses of chapter thirty, after describing the great respect that he once had, had verse thirty, or chapter thirty beginning in verse one, now says, but now they are that are younger than I have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained to have set with the dogs of my flock. Yet Where to might the strength of their hands profit me, in whom old age was perished? For want and famine they are solitary, fleeing into the wilderness in former time, desolate and waste. Who cut up mallows by the bushes and juniper roots for their meat? They were driven forth from among men. They cried after them as after a thief, to dwell in the cliffs of the valleys and caves of the earth and in the rocks. Job says, I who once was so looked up to... Now there are people laughing at me on Main Street. Now there are people that will have nothing to do with me. In fact, now the very ones who I would not even have let tend the dogs that keep my flock, now they are laughing at me. Haven't the tables been turned? Haven't things fallen so greatly for the life of Job? However, chapter 30 is going to move onward. We notice so amazingly in verses 13 to 15 They mar my path. They set forward my calamity. They have no helper. They come upon me as a wide breaking in of waters. In the desolation they roll themselves upon me. Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my soul as the wind and my welfare passeth away as a cloud. As this chapter comes to its conclusion, Job again makes note of just how lowly he is in the sight of so many. Verses 29 and 30. I am a brother to dragons and a companion to owls. My skin is black upon me and my bones are burned with heat. My harp also is turned to mourning and my organ into the voice of them that weep. So much had changed for Job. And now his last statement in chapter 31 reads like this. As Job comes to this last chapter of his reply, I would only ask you to notice that Job had some of these things to say. And as he commented concerning them, it is to be noted. Verses 18 and following. For from my youth he was brought up with me as with a father, and I have guided her from my mother's womb. If I have seen any perish for want of clothing, or any poor without covering, if his loins have not blessed me, and if he were not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the fatherless, when I saw my help in the gate, then let mine arm fall from my shoulder blade, and mine arm be broken from the bone. Job testified here that I have used the fleece for my sheep to clothe the poor. I have used the food for my table to take care of those that were the needy. Even when things were well with me, I had great compassion and care and interest in those that were less fortunate. And now he even notes as chapter 31 comes to its conclusion. The fact of his current mental state. Verses 34 and 35. Did I fear a great multitude? Or did the contempt of families terrify me that I kept silence and went not out of the door? Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me, and that mine adversary had written a book. Surely I would take it upon my shoulder and bind it as a crown to me. I would declare unto him the number of my steps, as a prince would I go near unto him. If my land cry against me, or that the furrows likewise thereof complain, if I have eaten the fruits thereof without money, or have caused the owners thereof to lose their life, let thistles grow instead of wheat, and cockle instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Job thus acknowledged, didn't he, that he had a clear conscience in terms of what he had done in days gone by. He had used the abilities, the possessions, and the talents that he had been given and used them to glorify God by assisting and helping others. I might ask, how do you and I feel about that? Is our conscience as clear as Job's was? Can we confirm that all those blessings God has given us, we have been dutiful to use them as He would have us do? First Peter 14 admonishes us that we must always do so. It is with that in mind that the words of Job are ended in chapter 31, verse number forty. At this point, we might already begin to question what then' is going to fill up the latter chapters of this book? If Job's not the one speaking, who is, who is it going to be? We shall find next Sunday evening that another gentleman who we have yet to mention actually speaks next in chapter 32. At this point, what might be some lessons or at least some applications that we might hurriedly use as we come near the close of our lesson tonight? I would submit that three come to mind at least. It seems to me worthy of a remark. The first one is this one, and we hinted at this earlier as we looked at chapter 26. The wonders of science, the character of the natural realm, the marvelous nature of what it is that takes place about us. In chapter 26, Job makes mention of some things that you and I ought to read. I would invite you to look with me at verse 7. And let's read for a few verses following that one. He stretcheth, this is speaking of God, he stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. He bindeth up the waters in His thick clouds, and the cloud is not, re- is not rent under them. He holdeth back the face of the throne, and spreadeth His cloud upon it. He hath compassed the waters with bounds until the day and night come to an end. Pausing at that point, although the verses have been brief, and although the comments have been very to the point, Did you notice with me what Job referenced? In verse 7 he said, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place. It's as if Job made notice that in the northern part of the sky there seems to be fewer stars and there seems to be fewer astronomical bodies. Did Job tell the truth? Job lived long before there were any telescopes. The telescope wasn't invented until the days of the 1600s. Job lived well over two millennia before that. Arguably, depending on how one dates the book of Job, he may have lived four millennia before that. Either way, long before there was a telescope, and yet even Job knew that there was a dearth of stars in the northern part of the sky. To this day, science has well chronicled it. If you peer a telescope directly toward Polaris, the north star, you find that around it there are almost no sister stars, almost none. How did Job know that? How, my friend, did Job know that? Well, over 4,500 years ago. There's only one way he could have known it. The God of heaven through the Holy Spirit told him. But verse 20 to verse 7 also says this, He hangeth the earth upon nothing. What is that thing that keeps the earth revolving around the sun? Are we tied to the sun with a strong rope? Are we tied to the sun with some kind of cord? Is there a foundation of iron on which the earth sits? You and I each perhaps have seen the pictures when the, the astronauts turned back their camera and took a picture of earth, and it's literally hanging on nothing. We know it's supported, but it's by this invisible force we call gravity, And yet Job made reference to the fact the earth is hanging on nothing, and he did so long before Isaac Newton discovered gravity and long before Newton derived or set forth the expressions that describe it. Again, how in the world did Job know it? There still is only one answer, isn't there? The God of heaven had revealed to him through the Holy Spirit these truths and science that wouldn't be discovered for thousands of years after Job's day. Notice what happens in the verses that follow. He makes mention in verses 8 and 9, "...He bindeth up the waters and the clouds." Is there really water in the clouds? Anyone who's ever watched rain knows that the answer is yes. And yet Job made reference to the hydrologic cycle. He made reference to what earth scientists today testify as a very critical and vital part of the entirety of that cycle. But you'll notice in verse 10, he says something more. He hath compassed the waters with bounds until the day and night come to an end. The waters have bounds. The oceans and the seas have boundaries that God has set. We know that apparently there was a time when water overran the surface of this planet. It did so in the days of the Noahic flood. But God has put in place bounds that will not allow that to happen again. Job made reference to that truth. Now, might we take note that Job lived far inland. From what we can tell, Job didn't live near any seas, and yet he knew this. He wasn't near the Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, or Indian Ocean, either one. And yet, he made note of the fact that the seas have bounds. Beyond that, he said something else. There were metals in the earth in chapter 28. This was long before there were large cranes to excavate the ores of diamonds and and copper and silver and gold. And yet Job knew it well. As that chapter comes to an end, he makes note of something else rather intriguing. He makes mention in verse 25 of Job 28 that the wind has weight. Indeed, the wind has weight. You and I today ask our students to learn that in school. We call it atmospheric pressure. 14.7 pounds for every square inch is the weight here at the surface of earth of the air above it. And long ago, God told Job that that the wind has weight. Again, you and I might notice that was long before Evangelista Torricelli and others measured that atmospheric pressure. Long before they, in fact, set forth the character of that in truth and science. And yet Job declared it long, long ago. In that same verse, and in the verses that follow, you notice he makes reference to the decree of the rain and the way of the lightning. That seems to suggest that there is a path that lightning follows that there is a channel through the air through which lightning travels. Is that true? Or does lightning just occur at random? Scientists have now learned that there is indeed a channel that lightning follows. It's called a stepped leader. How did Job know this? Today we have extremely fast cameras that can film the stepped leader that precedes lightning. Job had no such camera. How did he know it? Is it not the same answer as before? The Holy Spirit had dictated and revealed to Job these scientific truths that man wouldn't discover for centuries and centuries yet to come. May we not be impressed that science testifies to the truth of the Word of God. You and I unfortunately live in a time when there are many who think that the Bible disagrees with science. They seem to see a dichotomy between them, perhaps in no greater place than in creation, Some think that evolution testifies so strongly against the Bible, and to that statement they're true, but the thing is, evolution's not true either. There is not a single fact in science in disagreement with the Bible. There are a lot of science's claims and myths and the propaganda of science that disagrees with the Bible, but not a single factual maxim and truth in science has ever been found to be in disagreement with the Word of God. With that said, why don't we close this part of our lesson with 1 Timothy 6 verse 20 and notice how sad it is when the oppositions of science falsely so called lead men away from the truth of God. When our youngsters are taught the truth of science and the truth of the Bible, they will quickly see that they are in harmony. But when our youngsters are brought face to face with the foolish notions of men, Whether it be by evolution or otherwise, truly then they may be led away from the Bible. Some of the greatest scientists of all time have been firm believers in the Bible. Isaac Newton, Lord Kelvin, Pasteur, all of them were devout believers in the Bible. And yet think about some of the discoveries that they made. What about a second lesson tonight? The value of wisdom. We did notice, interestingly, that Job made reference to that in chapter 28. In fact, beginning in verse number 12, it says, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof, neither is it found in the land of the living. The depth saith it is not in me, and the sea saith it is not with me. It cannot be gotten for gold, neither that shall silver be weighed for the price thereof." It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx of the sapphire. The gold and the crystal cannot equal it, and the exchange of it shall not be for jewels of fine gold. How eloquently that was stated. And remember, this was a man who was in such dire condition, and yet words like that came out of his mouth. Oh, how great he stated the greatness of wisdom to be. Money can't buy The depth of the sea can't present it to us. Where is wisdom to be found? Again, note verse 28 of that same chapter. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. If you and I want to be truly wise, and if we want to encourage wisdom in others, there is ultimately but one location, one position, one source to which one may turn the fear of the Lord. We must instill our youth with it so that they will grow up to be wise, so that they'll learn to appreciate wisdom. How often does the Bible remind us of that point? In Psalm 111, verse number 10, as well as in Proverbs 4, verse 7, we find passages that read like this. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting get understanding. The world needs a lot of wisdom, doesn't it? We need civil leaders that are wise, men like senators and representatives and presidents, people in the executive branch of government, people in our companies and corporations, husbands and wives and families. We need wisdom in a lot of it. We now know where it's to be found. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If a person is knowledgeable of the Word of God, appreciative, and acknowledging of the greatness of God and all that comes with it, that person is wise. Now, he may not be a scholar by the ways of the world, and he may not have a Ph.D. after his name, but in the eternal scheme of things, that matters not at all. In the final analysis, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl is a wise person. Job stated that long ago, didn't he? That brings us to one final lesson tonight. Beyond this matter of wisdom and beyond the truth in science, one final thing might be Job's remarks about his own personal integrity. It is interesting, isn't it, that Job did defend himself. His friends accused him of being one who had lost his integrity. They accused him of one who had fallen far short of the dictate of the will of God. May you and I note today that it is a vital thing when our integrity is called into question. You and I too should feel it worthwhile to defend our integrity when that occasion comes. Job did it in words that read like these. It's no different for you and me today in that regard. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Reads Matthew 5 verse 16. In the word of 2 Peter 1, verse 5, we are told on that occasion that you and I should appreciate to add to our faith virtue and our virtue knowledge. That word virtue means moral excellence. It means doing what's right in all circumstances, be it daylight or dark, be it summer or winter. You and I must be that committed to doing what's right, to be virtuous to be that person recognized as godly. Does that characterize you and me? When someone's watching and even when they're not, do we still consider it important and vital to note that God is watching? As we come near the close of this lesson tonight, that matter of personal integrity challenges us in the language of Proverbs one: A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor more than silver and gold. With that said, tonight the lesson draws to its conclusion in summary statements like these. The third cycle of speeches has come to a close. Job has made his last remarks. Next up will be a different speaker. As we've studied tonight, though, we've been reminded that God wrote this book and the truths and science that it declares are things that Job could not possibly have known of his own accord. We've also learned about the value of wisdom. And finally... We've seen the importance of personal integrity. This very night, are you at one with, with the God of heaven? Have you obeyed His commandments? Are you safe in the fold of the church? If not, why not tonight to be enrolled in that greatest body of all? We can assist you in your obedience publicly to the gospel. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess the greatness of His name as the Messiah, and then be baptized for remission of sins. If you have done that, but you no longer are faithful, you've allowed Satan far too much leeway within the domain of your life, why not come back tonight to your first love? Make Jesus again the Lord of all, Acts 10 verse 38. If we could be of assistance in praying on your behalf for rededication, for forgiveness of those sins known publicly, why not come forward tonight and let us assist and pray on your behalf? Brother Jonathan's chosen this hymn of encouragement, and if you have a need like that in your life tonight, why not come while together we stand and while we sing?